Well, let me read Psalm 2 in your hearing, and then we'll continue to open up this idea of the mediatorial reign of Jesus Christ over the nations. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled and how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, brothers and sisters, I certainly stirred up a lot of interest last week by uh, approaching Psalm 2, uh, not out of a historical context, that is, what I did was not new at all. I took a very historical approach to the psalm and its understanding, and that's what I want to continue to do this afternoon. I want to open up more of what the scriptures teach concerning the mediatorial rule of Jesus Christ. Now, why take all of this time to do that? Well, it's in the Bible. <laughs> That's the short answer. You know, it's what my children would say to almost every answer is either God or the Bible. But because it's scripture is one thing but because of the context of our day and time is another. It's certainly not beneficial to just come to the Bible in some abstract way. We need to come with a purpose. We need to come seeking what is the will of God for us in the day in which we live. I mean, we just don't want to be simple historians. We just don't want to talk about history. Nor do we want to just be theologians. All we want to do is sit around and talk about theology. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to contend with the Lord in our daily lives. We have to answer very basic questions in all that we do. Is this God's will? Is God okay with this? What does the Bible say about the nations? And I could, I, very, I could have inserted the word politics. Now, what I want to do in this attempt that I am making is I want to redeem that word. 
The word has certainly fallen on hard times because of the corruption of the men who call themselves, and women, who call themselves politicians. And that's not solely uh, uh, related, that comment isn't solely related to the politicians of American government. It's across the board. It's universal. There is a universal corruption for the most part as it concerns um, human government. And, there, and because of that, now you can say, well, pastor, aren't we reacting? Yeah. We are reacting. But that's what we do when we find ourselves in trouble. When we find ourselves in trouble, what do we do? We seek answers. Sometimes that's the way God moves us to find an answer that we should have been seeking earlier but did not. So we are reacting. Now, now let me say this. But other Christians are also reacting when they say government is a man-made created thing and it's evil. And so if we were to really live in the kingdom of God, we don't need human government. Now that's not my view. And I think I'm going to easily prove that's not the view of Scripture. And I hope it's not your view. Human government is a gift. It was... It's part of the moral will of God that some men have been gifted to rule over other men for their good. Now let me say that. Not to be a tyrant. For their good, for the advancement of this world in the dominion and name of God who created it. And so we want to shy completely away from this concept. And, and they, these, some of these Christians would even go so far as to say, well, that's the church too. The church is man-made. We don't need the church. In fact, in a lot of the circles that I am sort of mingling in, they'll tell you, well, we don't need church. We need to be meeting on porches and in, at the kitchen table. And, you know, we need to get back to the basics, they say. But they offer no scripture. They offer nothing by way of uh, expounding on God's word to come to those conclusions. They're nothing more than sentimental reasons. We like sitting around the kitchen table over some cookies and talking about theology. Thus, we don't need the church. I get more out of that we have to be careful about that. So we have a massive problem. We're watching culture implode and explode. And we're wondering as Christians what to think of it. Does the Bible speak to these things? What should be our position? How do we address the civil magistrate in dealing with these circumstances. And while we watch all of this, we have to admit and agree to 
this, that because we see this, the absence of Christianity, the absence of Christianity in the cultural circles, politics, anything of that nature, anything related to the social fabric that makes up a society, what do we see being poured in its place? Rank witchcraft. Rank Satanism. There's more, there's, you've seen more posts from the church of Satan over the last eight to ten months than you've ever seen in your whole life. Where they were content to remain in the shadows and on the fringe, now they have become mainstream. They have engaged themselves in this abortion debate, calling it a right. And we're watching and seeing things that we've never witnessed before. Now, to keep us from falling into the end time trap and saying, Jesus must be ready to come back at any minute. Now, I wish he was, to be honest with you. I have no problem with him coming back now. But I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that is because of the way I understand Scripture. So, we're looking at Psalm 2. And we're looking at Psalm 2, and we're, ans- we're, a- we're answering the question, what is Jesus' role as mediator? Not as God, right? We, we know that God is over the nations. But Jesus as mediator, what is his role with the nations The psalm starts off posing that important question. And again, you could go back and listen to the very first introduction sermon as an introduction to the psalm and how really ridiculous it is that the nations would want to put off this reign of the Messiah. But the nations, and these are the Gentile nations, In an uproar, there is an application to this about with King David. It's a minor point because Christ is the primary point of the text. That is, there is in a sense that the Gentile nations were in an uproar over the installation of King David who was claiming this authority and this military might and power, and the nations were railing against him. But the greater and primary application is to Jesus Christ. And that's what verse 7 through 9 teaches us, that this is in a prophetic sense speaking of this mediatorial reign of Jesus Christ and how the nations will rail against it. And we know the nations, it's not just every, it's not like the solitary families, it's not just the focus on the individuals. Because of verse 2, 
The nations are ruled by kings, and the kings of the earth take their stand. There's a repeat in verse 2. He's not just talking about nations in general. He's talking about nation states, those, those heads of these nations, these kings of the earth. They have taken their stand, right? And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. It's obvious that in verse 1 through 3 that we are introduced to this concept and idea how the nations will rail against the installation and the authority of Messiah the Prince. And that was, and then we see in verses 4 through 6 we see what God thinks of this matter. He's not indifferent God takes notice of the nations scorning his son. He takes notice of it because in verse 4, when he talks about he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, that's not a passive statement. The Lord doesn't sit passively by while he's mocked and blasphemed, while his son is, well, mocked and ridiculed. This idea of scoffing is, is one that takes an active approach. He comes and he deals with them. Now, I'm going to just give you two. We're not going to go down this road because we've got a lot of scriptures to look up here. But, you know, anyone that comes to the Old Testament and they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 but it was just Israel. Israel was a theocracy, so to speak, which we need to be careful using that term. But since that was a term invented much later in uh, history, they didn't use the term theocracy. They didn't really have any relationship to Israel, these uh, nation states, so to speak. And then a primary example of that is Nineveh. What does God tell his prophet to do with Nineveh? Now, who was Nineveh? Well, they were pagans. They were unbelievers. And God tells Jonah to go there and preach the gospel to them to see if they would repent. And if they didn't repent, he was going to deal with them in his anger. And of course, Jonah goes, you know the story. He preaches, they repent. And that kingdom thrived for another 100 years in that repentance. And guess who repented? It wasn't just that a few people repented or that 51% of the people repented. The king repented. The princes of Nineveh repented at the preaching of the gospel. We see God's wrath poured out on another pagan region, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, they weren't part of the sons of Abraham. 
And yet God called them to account for their own wickedness. And now what's my point? My point is that we know God is sovereign over the earth. But when it comes to Messiah the Prince, we need to make sure we understand that the application and the installation of the Messiah is biblical and has a great ramification upon how we see the world that we live in. So, let's look at a dozen scriptures or so. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going, to, I'm going to just point the obvious out, certainly not trying to insult anyone, but I think um, pointing the obvious out in relationship to what we're talking about is important. When you look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, look at verse 20 and following, says, in which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, let's just stop there. There is no ambiguity there, correct? I mean, it's clear. It's as clear as the next statement in verse 22. And gave him as head over all things to the church. So we see that Paul speaks in a way that you cannot make a mistake here. That is, you can't look at the first part and go, oh, he's talking about the church. Because what does he do? He applies the church to the end of the verse. So who's he talking about in the first of the verse? So, beloved, what I'm trying to help you to see is that there's no conflict here. This is in harmony with what we are reading in Psalm 2. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's look at another uh, well-known scripture most of us uh, can quote it by heart, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. In verse 9 and following, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, or Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, notice when we talk about that, that Jesus is this, this Lord of Lords, right? 
again, that's not an, an ecclesiastical title. We don't have lords in the church. We have lords in the state. To be a king of kings and lord of lords is a what? A political statement. Does everybody follow me? Those are political titles. Those are not ecclesiastical titles. He's not called the shepherd of shepherds, though we have no problem with that. He's called the king of kings. He's called the lord of lords. And these are political titles, magisterial titles. And most Christians, when they, when they say these things, aren't, it, they never make that connection. They never make the connection that what they're talking about is that Jesus has the authority over all of the magistrates of the earth. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's superior. He's superior in excellence, his character. When you go and read the book that I recommended to you, Messiah the Prince, he does a good job in laying out Jesus' moral superiority. That is, he, he lays out all of these excellent reasons the nation shouldn't rail against him. Now, we all talk about who's qualified to be president or who's qualified to govern our state, who's qualified to sit on the, uh, these uh, school council boards and all of these things. Why? And we, we inherently think moral excellence, character. And yet, the same applies to Jesus. He is a moral superior when it comes to character, when it comes to moral excellence. He's the, the head of the head. He stands at the front. When it comes to authority, he's a superior because he's been given all of authority. There's not a, there's not a head among nations that is not under his authority. He's been given all power Power has to do with authority. It's, it's not necessarily physical might. A king has power. Power to do what? Power to say, guard, arrest him. Guard, seize them. Guard, loose them. Let them go. Tax them. He has authority to exercise power. And Christ has authority all authority. So you see, Philippians, now turn to Hebrews, and this is a compliment to um, Hebrews chapter 12. This is a compliment to what Paul says in Philippians because this rule, this power and authority comes after his resurrection. And, and that's vitally important because after his humiliation, beloved, comes his what? His exaltation. There's a theological sequence here. There's a pattern here. First, humiliation. Christ was incarnate in human flesh. He walked as a man. He suffered all of the various um, 
what you might call uh, infirmities of the flesh. He died. He was resurrected and he's exalted highly. And this is what Hebrews 12 talks about. Hebrews 12 and verse, well, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, devising or despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, when you take these two passages, when you take Philippians and Hebrews 12, the point is that Christ pressing on through his humiliation. What was it? What did Christ fixate on to get him through his humiliation? His exaltation. His exaltation. That God, his Father, had promised to reward him with the nations. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Psalm 2. So what was a great motivator for Jesus to press on through those very difficult and challenging times in his humility was the fact that he would be exalted by his father and that he would be installed over the nations as the Messiah for the benefit of what? Bringing the nations into subjection to the father. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, nothing that I have said, nothing that I have said contradicts anything orthodox, reformed, or anything. Every bit of this is consistent reformed theology. But we have to make application. That's going to be the difference. When you go to 1 Corinthians 15, this is actually Paul's understanding. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 24 and 25. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. You see there's no inconsistency there. That there is this understanding that Christ would be highly exalted and rewarded for his humiliation, for him coming into this world, for him you know, living a human life for 33 years, offering himself up as a sacrifice that he is that his heavenly father would reward him, and that reward would be his headship over the nations, and not just some, but all. Matthew 28. 
Matthew 28, this is a post-resurrection text. Now this text is typically only limited to discipleship. However, where we, where we fail in where we fail in just limiting it, just discipleship, we have to expand it, and that is, how are the nations subjected under his feet? Through discipleship. Through teaching the nations what it is to believe in God, what it is to have faith in God, what it is to repent of their sins, what it is to show submission to him. So this, this dominion and this subjecting of the nations and bringing the nations up under this dominion of Christ, well, primarily is discipleship. Verse 19, or verse 18. And Jesus came and came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, again, remember what I said about authority. Authority is the ability to command and to determine things by telling others you have the authority. If, I, if, if you have authority, you have authority over someone. You, there's authority for doing something. That's the idea. Jesus Christ is not just given just blank, like uh, empty authority. Well, he's just like, like over the heaven, but it doesn't mean anything. There's no such thing as intangible authority. If, if I say, okay, Jeff's in charge, everyone, he has authority. You see him differently. You, you're going to relate to him differently. Why? There's been, some, there's been a, a status determined. Same thing with Christ. Same, same thing with Christ. He has authority, and that authority is to prove something, is to do something, is to accomplish something. And he says that he's having authority over heaven and earth. And then what does he tell his disciples? Because I have this authority, now I'm telling you, go and make disciples of what? Nations. Not just people, nations. Bring the nations into subjection to Messiah, the Prince, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, if you were going, if, let's just set, let's make a setting, let's, let's establish a setting here. You know, if you go in and you say you're, say you're going, you're a missionary, and, you, and you're going into a country, and you stop at the local store, and you, you preach the gospel, you talk about the forgiveness of sin, you talk about the, what sin is, and, you, and, and then at the end of the presentation, you call them to believe in Jesus Christ and whatnot. Perfect. But now you have been arrested for causing a disturbance. And now you're taken before the chief magistrate, the head of the kingdom. You also are to give him or her the gospel. But it's a different way you approach him or her. You approach them as the head of the state. But that there is a what? A higher head that they must answer to. And it's the creator God's son. 
you see, I mean, that's how you would address the heads of the states. You, you, you don't bring them down, you elevate them and you say, listen, yes, you are the head magistrate, but there is also one over you. Who is this? Well, his name is Jesus. And he is God's son, and it's been prophesied that the nations would be, would be subjected under him. And this guy's like, I've never heard this before. And yet, that's what we find in the book of Acts. I challenge you, in light of what we're talking about, go home this week and read Acts. And now read it in light of the installed prince who sits in the heaven judging the Caesars of the world, judging these governors of the world. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. And so there's, there, this, is, this is just common. This is common, forgotten Bible theology right here. And this is what made the early church so powerful in their evangelism and so meaningful in their evangelism and, and so uh, effectual as they went out into the nations and preached the gospel, brothers and sisters. Um, Look at, let's see, Revelation. The, uh, you know, not revelations, but the revelation of John. And the first verse, let's look at, let's see here. Look at verse 10. And you have made them, he's talking about, of course, believers, to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. See, look, notice this concept, but, but there's no way that can be true unless the head of the church is at reign. This is, this is Revelation 5.10. There's no way that can be true. There's just that doesn't even make sense, particularly talking about the pitiful church who should have really no influence, no political influence, no cultural influence whatsoever. We're just to preach the gospel and stay in our little four walls of the church, so to speak. And yet here we have there's this ruling and reigning upon the earth. And how can that be? Well, it can only be because, well, Christ reigns over the earth. And we see that in verse 13, and this is what they're heard saying, those who sit around the throne, right? He says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's see, here's another one. I'm staying out of the Psalms just for now because I wanted to at least give you something of a New Testament, and I'm, there's dozens more, something of a New Testament, Testament pattern to this. Um, look at uh, Matthew 11, 
um, Jesus says uh, to those listening to him in, in this engagement of Matthew, you know, again, these unrepentant cities, they won't repent. And he's talking about those who come to him. And in verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, you have, it begs the question, what, what all things? And of course, there will be many Christians that will say, well, that only means for things of salvation. It only means spiritual things. It only means church things. But look at all the other passages they have to contend with. My point is not to certainly wear you down or to wear you out and say, okay, we get it, we get it. The point is, beloved, these are the things that have to be reconciled. These are the scripture verses. These are the, these are the, this, this the revelation of God that we have to contend with and in prayer on our knees certainly asking God for light to say, Lord, what does it mean for the Messiah to reign? How does that shape the way I view politics? How does that shape my politics? How does that shape the way I see politicians? Revelation 19. And as we will certainly see, that. The Lord has no problem uh, contending with the nations of this world. He's, I, I mentioned two earlier. The region of Sodom and Gomorrah, those were two different cities. Sodom and Gomorrah was not one city. There was Sodom, and then there was the city of Gomorrah, and they were all in this valley region. And the whole region was destroyed, not just a city. The whole region was destroyed. So it was more than just a town that suffered the wrath of God. And in Matthew, or Revelation 19, notice, and again, this is high imagery that Jesus has a, a title written on his robe. In verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What is the name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, what is he doing in this setting? Well, look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, again, if we're consistent with our imagery, we believe that sword to be his word. The Bible and Scripture is called a sword. We are to don the armor of God. And what is the sword in the donning of that armor? In that armor, in that armor scheme, what is the sword? It's the Word of God. Here is coming out of Jesus' mouth. His sword comes out of his mouth so that he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he who treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So how is Jesus bringing, subjecting, how is he bringing his dominion, how is he subjecting the nations to himself? The preaching of the gospel. The preaching of his word. 
Teaching a magistrate how to be a magistrate, how to be a, a prince over the people, how you're to treat the people, how are you to have true justice. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. None of us have any confidence in the court system. We've lost it because it's so arbitrary. You don't know what you're going to get. And yet, what's the one, one of the, one of the rules that we will have to contend with when we talk about the reign of the Messiah is that rule of justice. We don't want the arbitrary justice of men, do we? We want the consistent justice of God being meted out. How do we get that? By submitting to him. Now, and this is where I come back to the Constitution and the idea that there was a dominant Christian worldview when that document was written. It's obvious. And that is one of the things that has set this country apart for so long is that there was this wonderful system of justice when it was used that determined who was right and who was guilty. I, I, I think it was Sam Adams that basically said, in speaking about the juris, American jurisprudence, he said, um, it's better, now listen to this, it's better for a guilty man to go free than for an innocent man to be punished. When he's talked about it being better, better how? Better on the culture. We can handle misjudgments, but no, no people can handle the punishment of the innocent. That's depressing, that's demoralizing, and that's tyranny. People make mistakes and there are wrong judgments. And guilty men can be set free. But it's better that one guilty person be set free than for an innocent person to be punished for something he did not do. Now, there's a, that's a biblical worldview. I mean, we, we are infuriated when we see the good called evil, aren't we? We are incited to anger. When we see good people, innocent people, punished as if they were evil, it stirs us up. That's biblical. That's godly. And we don't apologize for it. Remember, anger as an emotion is designed to move us in a, in a right direction. If it's godly, we move into a godly direction. If it's sinful anger, we move into a sinful direction. But that passion is a powerful emotion that moves us to take action. Well, we've got about 15 minutes. Let's look at a couple of psalms. Turn in... Your Bibles, let's see, let's look at Psalm 47. Psalm 
verses 2, 3, and 8, 9. Let me just look at the psalm itself. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with a sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful song. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves and the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Notice, I'm just going to mention one thing. Look at verse 9. For the shields of the earth belong to God. Who are the shields of the earth? Magistrates. The kings of the earth are protectors of their people. Here they're called the shields of the earth. And what's the psalmist saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Yes, there's an application to Israel, but this greater application is to Jesus, the Messiah. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted Look at Psalm 72. That is, again, brothers and sisters, I'm just familiarizing you with this theology. Look at verse 10 and 11. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. I mean, this, this picture of the nations and bringing what? Gifts, bringing gifts, and of course in the application that we're making here, gifts to who? Well, the Messiah, the Prince, that nations in their subjection, in, in their submission, learn peace and joy and gladness and bring gifts. You don't, listen, it, it, you know, it's, not customary for heads of states to bring gifts to one another. But also, they're in, in this sense, this sense of joy in doing so. Let them bring gifts. They're delighted to come. It, you take Solomon, Solomon as a type of Christ. What did the, uh, the Queen of Sheba do? She brought gifts to Solomon. She came from across many lands, nations, to sit at his feet and to learn his wisdom. What a picture of the world in Christ. Where do these magistrates, where are they going to go to learn wisdom? Christ. They're going to go to the Word of God. 
They're going to go to teachers. They're going to go to those that can open up the Word of God. They're going to come and sit at his feet, and they'll be glad to do so in, in, in the sense that they would bring expensive gifts to demonstrate that they are glad to serve him in this way. Look at verse 17. May his name endure forever. May his name increase. Increase how? Increase among the land. Increase among the nations as long as the sun shines and let men bless themselves by him. Let the name of Christ grow. Increase. Let's see. Let's look at I'm going to have to skip some of these for the sake of time. Let's look at Isaiah. And again, this is in that portion of Isaiah where in verse 40, um, you know, you know how, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, not verse 40, but chapter 40 you know, um, it begins, this whole section begins with, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. This is the whole Messiah, the Prince. This is the, uh, this is the whole... Um, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the hymn, but you know the, what I'm talking about. Um, the Hallelujah Chorus. This is the whole part of all of that. This is the beginning of that section in that prophecy. Well, in chapter 49, look at verse 22. It says, in the, the, and the, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring their sons in their bosom, and their daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be their guardians and their princes, your nurses, and they will bow down to you and with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. The whole point being that, that, that there's going to be this great in subjection of the nations to Messiah the Prince. What's going to be the fruit of it? Great peace. Great peace. Now, none of this is going to be perfect in this life. But brothers and sisters, one thing that we don't see today is peace. We don't see peace. We see nothing but turmoil, confusion, calling evil good and good evil. I, and I don't want to even go into all the transgenders. All that. I mean, I could just, the, the lunacy is nonstop of what we find in this satanic kingdom. But as what's happened is God's people have withdrawn. In the withdrawal of God's people, Satanism has been able to rise. That's why there's more movies now on Netflix about witchcraft, devils, and everything else than you've ever seen before. Why? Because of the fascination with the occult. Where did that come from? It came from the removing of Christianity from public squares, and we allowed it. We allowed it. Because we have adopted a idea, an idea that, well, we can talk about it in the church, but we don't want to really want to do too much out there because we're just waiting to go to heaven. And I don't mean to sound sarcastic. I'm not trying to offend anybody. 
We have withdrawn and withdrawn for, for no biblical reason because we have been cowardly. Because we've not wanted to do it. We've lacked bravery. We lack courage. We're worried about what people think about us. We're even worried about what Christians think about. Oh, what? Well, you think politics is godly? Yeah, I do. And this is what my pastor's been teaching. These scriptures. I mean, what are you going to do with them? Oh, they're all spiritual. There's no physical manifestation of any of this. It's all spiritual. This, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hyperbole. Okay, we'll prove it. I'm listening. Show me. Isaiah 60. Foreigners, verse 10, foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you and in my wrath I struck you and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be opened continually and they will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession for the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. I mean, this is, this is strong language. I mean, we could talk about Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 11, uh, Psalm 89, Psalm 22, Jeremiah 10, and there's probably another 15 on here. Meaning, when you take these, you have the same consistent thought and picture. Jesus will be installed as the ruler of the nations. And that installation and rule will have an effect upon the earth. It will have an effect upon the earth. And what we have to do as God's people is believe it, see it, agree with it, and teach it. You say, well, it looks pretty bad out there. Absolutely, it does. But my hope is not in the strength of men, and nor should yours be. If all of this is true about the Messiah, this won't last. There will come a season when Jesus will stop it. Now, ordinarily, he's going to do so through means. I don't think the church is even equipped to preach the gospel to this culture. I don't know if it even wants to, sadly. And when I say the church, I'm not just talking about cows, I'm talking about the church. But yet, the church will at some point have to and must to salvage this earth for God's glory. And we have to do it as the, as the glory of God. For God, listen, I'm going to say this. For God and country. For God and country means something. It used to mean something. It still does, except we've forgotten it. For God and country. And so, beloved, it's not about the church ruling over the state. No. It's not about the state ruling over the church. 
It's about Jesus ruling over church and state. That's the connection. Jesus is both the ruler of church and state. And he's not an absentee magistrate. He is going to call into account rebels. He's going to call into account ministers who don't do their job. He's going to call into account church members that aren't serious. He's going to call into account civil magistrates that are tyrants, just like he did in the book of Acts. He's going to call into account these nations that, that did not submit to him. He's going to call into account. Why? Because we belong to him. We've been given to him. We've been gifted to him by the Father. And he has every right to give us to him and to install him as head over church and state. I would submit to all of us, or at least I would leave this before you. As we begin going into the further the psalm, and I begin talking about various things like education, court systems, and things like that, all I'm asking you to do is say, thus saith the Lord from Scripture. That's it. I'm not even asking you to agree with me. But what does the Bible say? That's all we're asking. Let's pray. Now, Father, do bless this word. Father, there are answers. There are answers to a dying culture. There are answers to a tyrannical magistrate. There are answers to a weak and cowardly church. Now, Father, come and help us see our place. Help us know the truth. Help us to live the truth. Lord, and let us not concern ourselves with the consequences. Let us be wise. But at the same time, Lord, let us leave the consequences to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.